Uh, I mentioned when I came a few weeks ago how excited I am to be here in a college town and to be here in Clemson and to get to know all of you. It's great to see some familiar faces and to keep getting to know you, and it's great to be here tonight and look at God's Word with you all. So turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 7 and 8. Uh, while you're turning there, I want to share with you a story that got my wheels turning um, when I was looking at this passage about a year ago, I came across this story at the same time I was studying this passage, and it just kind of opened up the whole passage for me. So as we get to read the text in a moment, I want to share the story first because I wanted to help kind of fire your imagination about why we need the words of Ephesians 1, 7, and 8 tonight. And I got it from a podcast I was listening to. Um, it's a story about a man named Gary. And uh, Gary had a dad when he was a little kid. Gary's dad loved two things. Gary's dad loved work, and Gary's dad loved tennis. He loved work so much, he would get up early in the morning before Gary was awake. In the dark, he would commute into New York City. He would do his job. He would come home late at night. And if there was any words there at the dinner table together, they were words of anger, but usually it was just silence. And as I tell this story about Gary, I want you to kind of put yourself in his shoes. And maybe some of this story as it unfolds will maybe even resonate with some of your story as well. Now, as soon as the dinner meal was over, Gary's dad would get up, go to his desk in his home, and keep working. And Gary never saw his dad happy, even though he was doing this one thing he loved, which was work. The only time he ever saw his dad happy was on Saturday mornings. Because Saturday mornings, you guessed it, was the time Gary's dad did the other thing he loved. Gary's dad went to go play tennis with his friends. And I can resonate with this. When you're a little guy, when you're a little girl, you want to enter into your parents' world somehow. You want to enter into your dad's world. Gary couldn't enter into his dad's work world, but he thought, maybe I can enter into my dad's world of tennis. So he said, Dad, will you teach me tennis? And his dad said, yes. So Gary, you can just picture it. You're a little kid. You're so excited. You're going to go out and do this thing with your dad. And so he's there. He's on the court. And his dad, you know, shows him where to stand. He shows him how to swing the racket. I think I just did a baseball motion more than a tennis motion. I never played tennis. Uh, so he shows him how to swing the racket. He shows him where to hit it, what to do. He serves him a few balls. And Gary is having the time of his life. And of course, you know how it is when you're learning how to play any sport. But when you're learning how to play tennis... You miss some of the balls that come to you. Some of them go rocketing over the fence. Some of them actually land where they're supposed to. It's going all over the place. And for Gary, it was a wonderful moment. He did not feel any shame. He did not feel any apprehension. He was in his dad's world. But that moment did not last very long. Because not long after his dad taught him those things and he served him a few balls, he says, hey, Gary, come over here to the net. And Gary said, I just bounced up to the net, no fear, no apprehension, I'm in my dad's world, I'm having a great time. And he said, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set this machine up over here, and it's going to fire some balls at you, and you just keep working on what we talked about. And his dad left to go play with his friends. Just set Gary up alone. And the machine started firing, and Gary walked away. And as you might imagine, Gary never played tennis again, ever. Didn't pick it up. But Gary learned something that day. What, 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 what lesson would you learn if you were Gary in that moment? 
If you and I were him, I think we would learn the exact same lesson he did. He learned that if he was to have any worth or value, it would be because he worked at something and became good at it. He felt in that moment he was worthless to his dad because he wasn't good at tennis. If he was good at tennis, his dad would have kept playing with him. But he wasn't good, so his dad left to go play with the ones who were good. Or you could turn his promise around and say it this way. He would have worth if he continued to produce, if he continued to have something. And he made a promise to himself that he would never be exposed again because he was going to excel at everything. And so it set Gary on a trajectory of this amazing, successful life where he was pouring himself out and working all the time in order to keep that promise to himself to never be exposed again. Do you see how this works? And he was trying to constantly answer that question that we all are trying to answer. Why are we worth anything? Why are you worth anything? What gives you value? What functionally in real life, day to day, makes you worth something, makes you feel worthwhile or makes you feel valuable? On one hand, you can say, well, good for Gary. His life made him excel, or this promise he made made him excel in his life and go forward. But actually, it didn't work very well at all. Because even though he became successful, do you think he ever was excellent enough to silence the fear that he might be worthless? Of course, he could never be that excellent. Do you think when he put that same drive onto his kids that it bonded his kids with him or drove them away from him just like it did with his dad? And how do you think it impacted his relationship with God? It corrupted his relationship with God because he felt like, with God, I also have to perform. I also have to be good enough to have my worth and to have my value, to have God love me. And so when we think about this, we start to realize, man, this kind of fires everything about who I am, how I feel about myself, the choices I make, and what I do. Where do I find my worth and my value and why? And so what I want to do tonight is kind of peel back the layers of that. And maybe you're like Gary as you begin to answer that question, where Gary found his worth and value by being excellent at something, was this kind of complicated mixture of how he was sinned against by his dad, but also his own sin and how he responded to that. And so this drive for worth that he had arose from that complicated mixture of how he sinned and then how he was sinned against. But what I want to share tonight is that these two verses, Ephesians 1, 7, and 8, address both those places. And it gives us a place where we can receive our worth and a kind of worth we can rest in also. So let me read these two verses, and then I'll pray, and then we'll walk through those two points. So Ephesians 1, 7, and 8. In him, that is Jesus, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for these words. Thank you for what they tell us. Lord, as we consider them tonight, we pray that um, you would help them to come alive to us, that they would work in our lives and in our hearts just in the way you intended them to. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So first, how do we receive our worth? And here I want to first think about this word redemption. If you look at verse 7, it says, in Jesus we have redemption. And that's a word that's not uncommon to us. We usually think about the word redemption when it comes to movies. We think about, oh, what a great story of redemption. 
And uh, you can think of all kinds of movies, but usually they're the ones where the character, in its simplest terms, goes from bad to good, right? Can you think of a movie like that? I'm going to show my age. Uh, yeah, raise your hands if you've seen Groundhog Day. Okay, see, it's not that dated. About half of you have still seen it. It's like 1993, which I think of as not that long ago, but it really was because you weren't even alive. So, but you've still seen it, and those of you who've seen it, do you find it funny? Yeah, it's funny, right? So it's this story about this really mean guy. Uh, he's played by Bill Murray. His name is Phil Connors, and he's not a nice guy. He's obsessed with his career. He's obsessed with everybody making him look good. And as his punishment for that, it's a weird story, he's condemned to repeat February 2nd over and over and over again. It's Groundhog Day. He wakes up every morning, and it's Groundhog Day. And at first, he realizes, I can't die. Because even if something bad happens to me, I wake up, and it's the next day, and I'm good to go, right? And so he's like, I can do whatever I want. And he totally is selfish and indulges himself. But then he gets so bored, and it's all meaningless, and he finally realizes, you know what? I'm a jerk. And I can maybe get out of this repeat cycle of every day, every day, every day, if I learn to be kind and loving. So he realizes he must change. And when he begins to use that repetition of the day for the good of others, well, then it's February 3rd. And now he's a new man. He's kind. He's loving. He's not a selfish jerk. And it's a story of redemption. He's gone from bad to good. But in all these stories, nearly every movie that's a story of redemption, where a character goes from bad to good, it's the character himself or herself that is not just the subject of redemption, but the agent of it as well. It's Phil in that movie, you could say, that saves himself. He realizes his problem, he realizes the solution, and he fixes it. And so redemption in our movies is a story of someone going from bad to good, but they're doing it by their own actions. They bring about redemption in their own way. But I think it says something really important that all of our movies show this human need to go from bad to good, but also that we're going to try to fix it ourselves. We want to be the ones who fix ourselves. And the Bible has a lot to say, if you know much about it, it has a lot to say about redemption. It has some surprising things to say. It takes the world's idea of redemption that I just talked about where we take ourselves from bad to good and it turns it on its head. And to show you what the Bible has to say about redemption, I want to take you on a bit of a rabbit trail, but it's going to apply, so bear with me. Think back to with me if you know anything about the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, there is a rule or a law, some instructions about redemption, but it's for the owners of oxen can't believe I'm giving you this example because none of you own oxen. Maybe you do. Maybe you're the one person who comes from a ranch or a farm or the three people in the room. If, I, you, know, if you have oxen, I've embarrassed you. I'm sorry. But maybe none of you have oxen. Anyway, it's a story about what do you do if you're the owner of an ox and the ox gets out and it kills someone. Anybody thought about that today? Anybody wondered what to do if your ox gets out, gores somebody? But particularly, what if your ox gets out and kills somebody, and the ox has killed somebody before. The Bible in the Old Testament for the people of Israel in their nation had a law for that. And if that's the case, if you knew your ox was a deadly hazard, and you still let it get out, then you and the ox must die. 
because you knew it was a deadly hazard and you did not protect your neighbor. So is a sense of justice, a sense of what is right, but there was something that the family members of the deceased person could do. They could ask instead, listen to this, for a ransom payment. They could say, look, instead of requiring the life of the ox owner whose negligence caused the death of our family member, we will ask for a ransom payment. And that way there could be mercy and justice. And the owner of the ox could buy back his life with a ransom payment. He could buy his life back if that's what the family members of the deceased person wanted to do. You see, that ox owner had a debt that could be paid for by his life, but at the entrance of justice and mercy, he could pay for it with a monetary payment. Now, in some ways, of course, we've not had oxen get out and gore someone to death, but we do have a sense that we have a debt that we can't pay. We sang about it earlier. And how are we going to be able to pay it? Well, we want to be those ones who can pay our own debt. Is there a way that we can pay that? Is there a payment we can make? And of course, there isn't. But if you look further with me at verse 7, it's not just that we have redemption, but we have redemption through his blood. It takes that script of us paying for our own redemption, us paying for us to go from bad to good, and it flips it on its head. Because we're the guilty ones, Jesus is the innocent one. But instead, the innocent one, says, I will pay. It totally flips it on its head. So instead of the guilty paying the innocent, in Jesus redeeming us, the innocent pays for the guilty. The innocent pays the debt the guilty could not pay. We stood behind a debt, underneath a debt that we couldn't pay, and Jesus says, I will pay with my own blood. And you say, but is it enough to pay my debt? And yes, it absolutely is. Because in the Old Testament, the reason they had to have blood sacrifices was because there's a verse in Leviticus that says the life of the flesh is in the blood. And so if you stand under a death sentence, a payment of someone's own blood and life pays for it. So Jesus' sacrifice of his blood pays for our sins, and the innocent pays the ransom payment for the guilty. Now you can say, is that enough? Well, think about it. If you took all the wealth that's in the world right now, not just the wealth of all the billionaires that you hear about in the news, but the wealth of everybody in the world. And then you add to it the wealth of everybody who's ever lived and everybody who ever will live. That wealth is not even near as much as what Jesus' blood is worth. It's the blood of God's own son. And God says, I will pay the blood of my son to pay off your debt to redeem you, to bring you back, to pay that ransom payment. That's why 1 Corinthians 6.20 says that you were bought with a price. Now, what does this all have to do with worth and where we find our worth? God's saying, what are you worth to me? You're worth the most precious thing that there is. God says, I will prove your worth to me. I will prove it by buying you. I will buy you at a price, at the most expensive, extravagant price he could possibly pay. So often in my relationship with God, I feel like Gary at the net. I feel like I have to prove myself to him. I have to earn his acceptance. I have to earn his love. But God's saying, you don't have to prove your worth to me. I've proved your worth to me, God says. 
I have proved it at the cross. I have proved it by the shedding of blood of my own son. That's how God feels about us. That's one place we get our worth from. In all those places where people have said things and done things to us that they shouldn't have said or done, are those places where they have not said or not done something to us or for us that they should have done, that has made us feel valueless and made us feel worthless, God says, I speak so much more loudly. I declare to you that you are worth all of anything I could imagine, the blood of my own son. It's not just how God feels about us, but what he's done for us. Again, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, comma, the forgiveness of our trespasses or sins. Trespass is another word for sin, which is another way to say breaking God's law and heart. So when we are redeemed by Jesus' blood, we are forgiven of our sins. Again, we stood under this debt, but it's all canceled. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 14. God forgave us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So I know some of you, like me at different points in my life, I know some of you right now are struggling with that question of, am I worth anything? Am I valuable? Does anybody care? Does, it, does anything matter? Does anything about me matter to anybody else? And again, God is saying, yes. In those places where we're sinned against, those things that were said to us and done to us that shouldn't have been done, done God says, I redeem you. I buy you. You're worth everything. In those places where we feel worthless and valueless because of our guilt and what we've done wrong, God says, I forgive you. Any kind of argument that we can make to try to convince ourselves or God that we're not worth anything, God has an answer for it. God says, I bought you at the most expensive price. I've forgiven you of all the things you've done that make you feel worthless and guilty. And so therefore, we receive this worth. We can't earn it, so we can't lose it. Every other place we try to find our worth and value, whether it's by excelling with good grades, or succeeding, or our friendships, or our whatever it might be, those things are only as stable as long as you can keep them. And you're always working so hard to try not to lose them. But if God gives us our worth, then we can't lose it. He gives it because he loves us. He proves our worth to him by doing these things. And all we have to do, he says, is believe. We're given the greatest thing in the world, this redemption and forgiveness, by nothing but faith. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And that's what we have to now turn to and think about. How do you rest in that? Because you can receive it, but how do you really rest in it? How do you really rest in it? Because we can be still tempted to think, but my shame is too great. My guilt is too great. I hear what the Bible's saying about redemption and forgiveness, but, and we want to fill in all these other arguments after we say but. I know what God is saying, but what about what that person did or said to me? Or what about that thing I said or did to someone else? And what we need are better arguments. Arguments that God can give us to respond back to us when we are trying to convince ourselves that his redemption and forgiveness aren't that good when we're trying to rest in it. So think with me just at those first two words in verse 7, for instance, when we need a better argument. In him or in Jesus. We could have sermons and sermons about what those two words mean, but they're beautiful. I want you to know this, because when you become a Christian, 
It's not just that God does stuff for you, like redeem and forgive you. He actually unites you to Jesus. And in the most profound and real but spiritual way, you become one with him. So that when he died, you died. And when he was resurrected, you are resurrected. So salvation isn't just given, it's guaranteed. Because you're united to Jesus. His death was your death. His resurrection was your resurrection. So you can rest in what he's done for you because it's guaranteed through your union with him. Or if you think about what he says also in verse 7 and 8, that we have redemption and forgiveness according to the riches of his grace. How much redemption and forgiveness do we have? Well, you have it equal to his grace. You can't exhaust it. You can't outspend it. Your shame and sin and sense of unworthiness can't be greater than his grace. You never see a place in scripture where God meets a sinner and he says, ooh, that's too much. That's a debt I can't pay. That's something I can't forgive. And that's true for us. There's nothing any of us have done in this room. You take your worst, most embarrassing, shameful thing that you've done that you never want to tell anybody else. And God says, yeah, I can forgive that. I have enough grace for that. You can rest in it because I have it according to the riches of God's grace. And then we can also look at these words which he lavished upon us. I love that word lavished, that his grace was lavished upon us. I don't know what that word makes you think of, but it just makes me think of something above and beyond anything I could possibly imagine. It's extra. It's tremendous. It's more. It's been poured out abundantly, exceedingly, extravagantly, more than I could ever need. His grace has been lavished on us. So yes, you can rest. All those arguments you try to mount towards God of why his his grace is not good enough for your shame and guilt. No, he's, he's lavished it upon us. Sometimes we think it's, his grace is just, just shy of how much I need, and I have to make up that difference. Or God forgave me and got me back to zero, and now I have to keep going and trying and succeeding in order to keep it. But he says, no, I've lavished it upon you. You can receive this worth, and then you can't lose it because you didn't earn it, and then you can rest in it because his grace is greater than all of our shame and our guilt. So just, just think with me and dream with me as we start to close about what your life could be like, what my life could be like, if I really got this more and more. Maybe just thinking about a story like Gary's, <clears throat> maybe that makes you a little bit curious about your own story. And why do you have those senses of worth and value that you have? It always is some mixture, like we said, of your own sin and how you've been sinned against and why are you striving. Maybe some of you are striving to excel at something, whatever it might be, academics or something else, because you're trying to quiet that sense of unworthiness and valuelessness. And man, if I can do that, then I'll have worth. Or maybe some of you are holding back from really going for something and really trying to succeed at something because you're afraid you might fail. And if you fail, it would just prove that fear of being worthless. So sometimes that fear of being worthless drives us to exceed, to excel and to succeed. And sometimes it causes us to hold back for fear that we'll fail and be proven right. It's always driving us. And you really need to identify what is it that drives me? What is it that gives me that sense of value or worth? And can it really work? Is it a solid foundation? How is it really going to impact 
my view of myself, my relationship with others, and my relationship with God. And instead, peel back and say, God, what would it be like if I just received worth and value from you? Apart from anything that's been done to me or apart from anything that I've done, and what if I really believed and rested in that? You would be a completely transformed person. You could be a completely loving person towards others. You wouldn't need anything from them. You'd be secure and stable in yourself. I want that kind of life. I imagine we all do. And then dream with me a little bit more. What could this campus be like if more and more students got that? If we were able to live that before them and model that and make them curious, and then more and more got it, this campus could be a place that comes alive to a place or to a truth that we can be redeemed, that we can have worth and value. I don't have to tell y'all, but we live in a time and a place where, man, if you tell people, you know what, you're the result of a great big cosmic accident, and you're just spinning around in space, and one day it's all going to go dark and nothing's going to matter. That's the prevailing narrative that people are told, that we're all told. And does that give people a sense of worth or value? Absolutely not. We're told, congratulations, you're the result of a cosmic accident, and you really matter. (laughs) And you're special. But if we're the result of a cosmic accident, then nothing matters. And so we're all fighting that sense of worthlessness that comes from that narrative. But if we can show people a sense of worth and value that comes from a transcendent and loving God, then it could transform their lives as well as we embark with Jesus on this mission that he gives us. Again, I don't know about you, but that's the kind of cause that I want to be a part of as well. So my prayer for you all as we wrap up is that these few minutes thinking about Ephesians 1 would just, again, cause you to question, where am I finding my worth? Where am I finding my value? And my value? And what are my best arguments against God's grace? And what are his better arguments that his grace is enough? And what would my life be like if that really captured my heart? And how might God use me in the lives of others if it did? Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your truth. We thank you that there is worth and security and value outside of ourselves. Lord, thank you that your grace is real for all of our sins. Thank you that your love and acceptance is greater than all the places that we've been hurt. Lord, I pray that where each person is struggling, you would apply this great truth to their lives, apply it to my life. Help it to sink in, we pray. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.